0: I'm Holly Wayment, and this is Pediatrics Now, cases, updates, and discussions for the busy pediatric practitioner. Click on the link at the end of this podcast for free credit that may include CME, MOC, or ethics credit, depending on the topic or podcast. Our topic today is a big one. As our pediatric practitioners know, fentanyl is now the number one killer of people 18 to 39 years old. Joining me here today is Dr. Glenn Medellin. He attended medical school at the University of Texas Medical Branch at Galveston. He did his internship at University of Colorado School of Medicine at Denver and residency at University of Colorado School of Medicine. Dr. Medellin is double-boarded in pediatrics and hospice and palliative medicine, and he sees patients at University Health. Dr. Medellin, thank you so much for being here today in the podcast studio. It's such a difficult topic and painful to talk about, but it's important for us to talk about it.
1: It is a public health crisis. When we look at the data for fentanyl deaths, it is pretty alarming. Since 2013 to 2023, the rates of death for fentanyl overdosing has risen 3,000%. percent And that is just uh, incredible. And even in the past couple of years, there's been a huge increase from 1999 to 2021 of deaths in children. In that period, we had about 14,000 children less than 18 die from fentanyl overdosing. And although I guess 90% of these are adolescents, 10% are children younger than that. And we actually had 40 children less than four years of age die of fentanyl in that two-year period. That's national. Uh, And for the most part, fentanyl is not very well absorbed from the skin. There is transdermal fentanyl, which are patches, but that's mixed with some alcohol and other chemicals to help the fentanyl absorb through the skin. And the patches actually have to be in place for days to really build up to the level of fentanyl. That is um, therapeutic. So, for a while, people were concerned that just touching some fentanyl could cause an overdose. And even though children are very susceptible because fentanyl is so potent, we really do, it's more children ingesting the fentanyl. And this can be, you know, it can be small amounts. And sometimes there are fentanyl pills that are coming in little candy like colored tablets, possibly because. Just so that it can get through borders and through security. So it doesn't look like a drug, but also perhaps to entice teenage population. But children may see this in an amount of fentanyl that will give a teenager a high. It could be very fatal for a toddler or a child.
0: And even I saw a photo of it. It's just, it looked like just a few grains on the tip of a pencil.
1: Yeah, it only takes a couple of micrograms of fentanyl to give someone a high. And so because it's so such a small amount, it's mixed up with bulky agents to make the tablets. And so normally pharmaceuticals are all made that way. A tablet is not pure medication. The tablet is mostly other agents to make a pill shape that's easy to swallow. And the problem is that a lot of, well, all fentanyl it, that's bought over the, in the streets is made in in Mexico or China or by drug dealers. And so you don't always mix it well and correctly. So there may be a wide ver- variation in the strength of the fentanyl from one tablet to another.
0: And Glenn, you've been in this field for more than 20 years, hospice and palliative care. Or is it more like 15 years? Or, mm-hmm. Do you... I mean, I and I know there was an article in the new New York Times saying this this crisis the fentanyl crisis is unprecedented for america what What advice do you have for pediatric practitioners who are seeing kids and families on a daily basis?
1: You know, I do think that we need to make sure that families are aware that of the dangers of fentanyl and the difficulty is that fentanyl is not a drug that is prescribed routinely that families have in their household. So 10 years ago, the discussion around opioid overdosing was really about patients having access to morphine or hydrocodone or oxycodone medicines that were prescribed after operative procedures or after a a fracture or for chronic pain. And we And often families would get large quantities of the medicine, maybe take two or three pills and then have these bottles of medicine sitting around. And so our really focus was, is we need to be wise stewards of our opioids and prescribe smaller amount, look at the quantities that needed, trying to get the prescribed opioids off the street. And so a lot of our discussions were locking up medications and why he's prescribing. And I think we still need to continue that because there are still deaths from regular opioids that are prescribed, but we're talking about in the hundreds nationally now versus the thousands of children that are dying from fentanyl overdose. So the concern is pretty much all the fentanyl that people are overdosing on is coming off the street and is coming from drug dealers. And so our discussions need to be around concerns for substance abuse disorder in their children. And so all teenagers really should be screened using um, either the S2BI, which is a screening the brief intervention, or the BSTAD screener, which is a brief screener for tobacco, alcohol, and other drugs. And these are two rapid screening tools that a pediatrician can use in order to for teenagers to look at their risk for substance abuse disorders and then if we find that they're at risk we need to do brief interventions and refer them off for therapy.
0: And can we put links to that in the in this we'll put links to that in mm-hmm. in the text for this podcast? Yes. So then if you if you find that that the patient is at high risk what type of therapy would you recommend?
1: Well, at that point, you know, we do then need to get them hooked up with some mental health professionals and substance abuse professionals. Because if they are using substance abuse regularly, they may need to be detoxified and then they need to be in some substance abuse therapy programs. And so, you know, if we need to look for those resources, you know, they can be found. Um the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration. S-A-M-H-S-A has a national helpline that can link you to the um, resources in your community that deal with substance abuse. And if a patient's non-funded, can help find the resources that will have discounted or um, no-cost services for substance abuse. They can also link to programs such as the 12 Steps Program of uh, Narcotics Anonymous and N- N- Naranon, which is for family members of someone that has a, sub- a substance abuse disorder, so there are different resources for these families that we need to connect them to. If a family, if they're trying to figure out what resources are available for them, you know, they can call two one one will then hook them up to local mental health resources they can just discuss when they get the two on one operator what their concerns are that they and um, they will once again be given some resources and if there's a true crisis going on, they can call the call the um suicide prevention and crisis line you know nine eight eight which can also help them in a crisis situation. Of course if someone's overdosing, it's nine one one and get a medical help out.
0: And is 211 specifically for drug abuse hotline?
1: It's for pretty much all kinds of um, public assistance. So, I mean, it can be from your garbage didn't get picked up, and you need help on how to get connected to the sanitation department in the city. It can be how to get help with Medicaid resources, how to get any type of public assistance, and then into programs like this. So, it's a general how to access government number
0: for That's is that emergent okay is that san antonio or nationwide That's
1: nationwide
0: okay so 211 988 for the suicide prevention of course 911 if it's urgent glenn do you have any recommendations for regarding so say if a pediatric practitioner has a patient in front of her who's an adolescent at high risk language that could warn this adolescent about the risk he or she may not realize, even though they've probably heard how dangerous it is. But as we know, their prefrontal cortex is not fully developed. And so they may not realize, you know, should they be saying like one pill could kill you or?
1: Um, I would probably approach this from a motivational interviewing strategy and one, find out what they know and understand because adolescents probably already know that information. But we want to clarify that. They do understand that there are risks. We can explore their understanding of the dangers of using these medications. You know, explore their desire to change their behavior, the desire, their motivation to try to find help, and so. But I would want to make sure that the teenager does have the information that that Nil is extremely dangerous, unpredictable and that it could kill them because
0: the pediatric practitioners have power when they're seeing families and kids usually i mean i know uh, my kids it's it's that much more powerful if our pediatrician is saying something to them that i may have said 15 times already <laughs> yeah you know we
1: do have to you know starting at a young age encourage you know applauding our children when they're not using alcohol drugs tobacco, vaping, we do want to, you know, help them get the message that that's not healthy behaviors for themselves and, you know, help them feel good enough about themselves that they don't need to be using those drugs. And then, you know, a lot of this is mental health issues, and I think most people would not take a drug unless they have some issue that they're trying to treat and self-medicate themselves. So part of this is also good screening for depression, for anxiety, and for um, other mental health issues that would predispose them. For substance abuse, you know, of course, the issue is, is that mental health resources are so difficult to access and so underfunded in our society.
0: Yes, it's a mental health desert in a lot of states, including Texas, as we know. Perhaps CPAN could be a good resource for here in Texas.
1: Yes, and definitely screening for the mental health issues. And if we find them accessing CPAN, general pediatricians are going to have to be doing a lot of primary mental health care. And most of us kind of want to avoid this substance abuse because it's, a difficult field to be in. And of course, we're not substance abuse specialists, but we that doesn't mean we should just ignore it and pretend it doesn't exist. We should be screening for it, and we should then be finding the resources in our community so that we can get these children the help that they need.
0: And what about in the screening if the child's not telling the truth or the adolescent isn't answering truthfully?
1: That you know that's a lot of building rapport, you know, hopefully, if teenagers are in a medical home with the pediatrician that they trust, they will disclose the information you know teenagers will of course be told of their confidentiality of these discussions, and that the pediatrician's not going to immediately go call the parents and let them know, but if the teenager wants to keep this confidential, you know these mental health issues and substance use issues following their confidentiality laws and the provider will be able to get the teenager the help that they need.
0: With it being the number one killer of people ages 18 to 39, what you just talked about talk talking to our kids that could be planting the seeds for as an adult to avoid this.
1: Yes. And I'm you know and we teenagers using any of these medications is quite concerning because mm-hmm. Their brain is still developing, and by putting these chemicals into these pathways, it appears that we really increase our risk for substance abuse as adults. And it's a little hard to know if this is all cause and effect, or if if by giving a teenager an opioid, that's what causes them to use it more in an adult, or is it most teenagers don't need opioids? So if I give a so if they have a reason to need an opioid, they may have enough pain, other life stressors, other things going on that then it's those stressors that increase their risk. But we do know that if a teenager is needing opioids, that not just an issue right now. This sets them up for lifelong risks of substance use disorders.
0: And even or a teenager smoking pot or doing other drugs too, is it the same risk it could set them up for drug abuse later in life, affect their brains?
1: Yeah. And I think all these alcohol and marijuana and you know any other drug in an adolescent brain is pretty concerning and yeah, even in marijuana there sometimes it's laced with fentanyl because fentanyl is a little is more addictive and so sometimes drug dealers will want that addiction in there so that they can keep their clientele. So sometimes you think you're just getting marijuana, but you could be getting other things in there.
0: Glenn, mm. how concerned are you about the fentanyl crisis in America?
1: Well, I, I'm i pretty concerned. I mean, when we look at, I pulled the data from Texas and we look in back in August of 2019, there are three hundred and twenty five deaths from fentanyl, and this is mm. children and adults and in twenty twenty three we had two thousand five hundred deaths from fentanyl mm. you know, so a Awful. tenfold increase in that and when we look at other opioids in twenty nineteen we had just the prescribed opioids, we only had four hundred and forty deaths from opioid, and that's increased- and that stayed about the same It's about six hundred now so the amount of increase in opioid deaths is all driven by fentanyl right now. And that that's because heroin was our other addictive opioid that was highly abused. But you actually have to have some morphine and some natural opioid in order to modify it to make the heroin and, and make it so potent. And most of our other opioids, you've got to have some of that poppy extract, the natural substance. Fentanyl is a not a, is a synthetic opioid, which means it can be created in a lab without the poppy extract, which makes it much easier to fabricate. doesn't need controlled substances to fabricate. And then the amount that you need in order to get the, its effect is so much smaller that it's much easier to smuggle into the country. It's a lot Less expensive to make. And so it's it, it, the ability to get it is so much easier.
0: What about with everyday over the counter drugs or drugs? Is there any advice there of what you would say to the pediatric practitioner to say to patients, or is it more focus on the kids who are likely abusing drugs?
1: Well, I, you know. So when we look at the toddlers, you know, they obviously aren't abusing drugs. They're dying because they took some of the, they found the pill, they found some fentanyl that, that was around. And so and when we look at the causes of death of overdoses most of these overdoses 80% of the overdoses are not suicide they are unintentional so these are not teenagers even that are trying to kill themselves by overdosing this is unintentional overdosing you know so i we should recommend of course that you know children not take medications or pills from anybody that they don't know teenagers should not be taking pills Substances drinks any it's, fentanyl can be dissolved into a drink, so from anybody that they don't know because there are the risk there of getting fentanyl inadvertently
0: that's a great point. I didn't think about it with drinks I mean, yeah, so it can be dissolved and and it it wouldn't taste horrible no, that is so scary, so it has to be anything that you ingest. Basically it has to be from someone's handing you something and someone you trust.
1: Correct. If a teenagers in a party scene, they, whatever they ingest should be something that they trust and know where it came from.
0: And saw where it was poured out of something that was opened or something yeah, like that.
1: Don't lay their drink open while they go to the bathroom. And,
0: and that's, that's good advice, I guess, for all of us. Right. Yeah. Anything else you want the pediatric practitioner to know? I mean, it's, it's also terrifying. It's, it's almost, it's overwhelming. Or like you said, like there's so much they have coming at them. And this is one more thing, like, where do you start? But you've given some really great advice.
1: Yeah. I, you know, I think most practitioners are already screening for mental health issues and for substance abuse. So I don't, this should fit into their practice. I think just recognizing that the shift in opioid stewardship has changed a little bit because we used to feel that we had a little bit of control over the opioids that were out there and you know and heroin since it's injected really had a bar that was a little bit higher for teenagers you know fentanyl since you can get that high by oral ingestion is has lowered the bar for how accessible it is and so it's scary. It's worrisome. But I think we have the tools in place and the processes that are already there. We just need to be have our eyes open as we go into this next couple of years.
0: And even prescription medication or over-the-counter medication, it should be from where you're at the pharmacy. You You see where it's coming from. It's got the seal on it, all of that. It's really stressful if yeah. you think about all the ways that you could be exposed.
1: Yeah, and I think some of it is don't be overly scared. I mean, for a while there, there was concern that just being able to touch some fentanyl would was enough to give you an overdose, and people were worried of going to the crime scene and because of that. It's been recognized that some of that was hype and probably not true because it really does take a while to absorb fentanyl through your skin. And so it's not like you can touch some fentanyl powder and then immediately have an overdose because in order for transdermal systems to get the, the fentanyl in, you actually have, takes a while, like we already discussed. So I think be aware of fentanyl, but, you know, drug scene and party scene has always been difficult. And the problem with fentanyl is that it's the, It's so potent that it can kill us when we don't even expect it to. So there is a big push for EMS, for schools, for police to have Narcan. You know, I think that, you know, in probably most medical offices should have Narcan available. You know, I guess I would, if a family is around, has teenagers that they worry might be using substances, You know, I or knows that they're using some scissors should probably have some Narcan available at home. And you know, if I'm prescribing opioids that are chronic use for chronic pain, I now prescribe some Narcan to have in the concern that someone would actually overdose on it illicitly. Then that person can be treated. Narcan is actually pretty easy to use. It's just a spray into the nose. It can be bought over the counter and there is really no harm to using it. If a patient is down because they have diabetes and they're hyperglycemic and you don't know what's going on and you give them some Narcan, that's okay. But so, if you see someone down, give them Narcan, call 911 till someone can figure out what's going on.
0: One spray through the nose and it can, it reverses the effects of fentanyl. Because you, you prescribe fentanyl on a regular basis with hospice and palliative care.
1: Yes. You know, but it's a completely different field. And I think most pediatricians will not be prescribing fentanyl. They have a cancer patient with chronic pain, maybe the patches. If they're in an ER doing some, Procedures, they might be using fentanyl, or if you know, if a surgeon doing operative procedures with anesthesiology, the fentanyl is a very useful medication. But unlike other opioids, fentanyl is not one of the ones that's in a pediatrician's prescription very frequently.
0: Is there anything else you want to say that we haven't covered, or any other statistics before we move on to the parents? talking
1: directly to the parents. I think so. Is there anything else? I think, I
0: think we covered it. I, and we can skip this part if you want, or I like, we like to promote on pediatrics now, having a life outside of medicine, doing fun things, having, having interests outside of medicine in this high burnout, high stress career. Is there anything you want to talk about? Anything that helps you to do? I know what, what you do, is so amazing and it's got to be so tough. I, I really admire you too.
1: I mean, I think it's important to find joy and meaning in work. To me, I love what I do because I may truly able to connect with my patient and feel that I'm making a difference. Even if I'm not caring them, you know, I am provide decreasing their suffering and I'm providing healing and I just love that connection that I make with my families and the patients that I'm caring for. You know, I think it's really important to have good self-care. So when I walk out of the hospital, I have to have, you know, a network of friends. I need to have hobbies that I can do, things that keep me otherwise healthy. And, you know, and the more stress I get, I need to make sure I still eat well and exercise well. So all those things we know we need to do, but you know often don't but you know being a physician or any health care provider is you know a stressful job but as long as we can find the joy find the meaning in it you know I, I wouldn't do anything different and
0: I remember seeing you in the NICU and it was a family where the the baby wasn't going to make it and you all were, were praying and it was it was such a heart-wrenching moment but to be there with them to just your presence. I could, you know, it was making such a difference in helping this family during just a crushing time.
1: And I think for me, one of the special things about palliative care is that it is multidisciplinary and it's not just me and the family. It's also a team of providers, nurses, and childlike therapists, and chaplains. So we're really Valuing the whole person and not just diluting them down to a medical issue going on. And being able to participate in those sacred moments of life is special.
0: And focusing on the present moment, is that a lot of what you do?
1: Yeah. How do we, you know, a lot of times everybody's struggling. How do I get through the next couple of minutes? Because these are so difficult and so hard. But being able to be there and being able to be the, you know, calm in all that stress of what a family's doing is part of what we do.
0: Last question. What, what inspired you to go into this field?
1: You know, so I was a general pediatrician and developed an interest in children with special needs and medical complexity. And often we have to make very difficult decisions uh, for these children, with these children. And, but I just realized how so many people just kind of pulled away at those times when a family needed them most. And sometimes I'd look around and I'd be the only person that's standing there. And I saw the difference that I made. And I recognized that these children and families were going to suffer regardless if I was there or not. My choice was not, you know, was that child going to suffer? Was I going to be there for them to help them get through the? And, you know, families tell me that I make a huge difference, and that's what's worth it.
0: Dr. Glenn Medellin, pediatric hospice and palliative care doctor at University Health and the UT Health Science Center in San Antonio, thank you so much for being here today on Pediatrics Now.